here continuing in our study of what is often called the Sermon on the Mount, which as we have seen, perhaps a better title is Great Instruction. It is a set of very specific instructions which Jesus gave, which Jesus gave his initiates only, not, was not given out as public teaching to the multitude. You remember that seeing the multitudes, he left them. And when he was set, his disciples came to him. So he's talking to his disciples. We've seen that in this instruction, which very possibly was compiled by St. Matthew in the Gospel from several different occasions, or it may possibly have been given exactly as here, uh, he began by setting up the conditions which was required in the disciple in order to receive grace, in order to become that which they were initiated to become, to be poor in spirit, etc., that we went into some time back. Today, we'll take up the next section, take it up a few verses at a time, and see how far we get. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now this is a a very interesting section. I perhaps shouldn't use that word. They're all interesting. But this is especially interesting if we know um, what has been often said here, that the Masters have said many times, and which in fact the New Testament also proclaims uh, by and large, that the Masters come to bring grace, and they are above the law. And that is, Baba Salancing used to say, where there is love, there is no law. That because also if we are initiated by a perfect Master, we avoid the Lord of Judgment and are not judged under the law. So now what is Jesus saying? It appears as though he's saying, no, that's not true. But he's not doing that. In plenty of other places he does say things like I've just said. What he is doing is clarifying something very important because this is a a common assumption that many people make and is made to this day by many people. And that is that if you are, if you come under the protection of a perfect master, and you are not therefore under the law, and you avoid thereby the Lord of Judgment, is a mistake that many people make is to then think, well, I can do anything I want, and it won't matter. And the Masters say, no, that's not true. By rising above and transcending the law, 
it is true that you avoid the nitty-picky legality of the law which the negative power uses for his own ends, but you come into, under the jurisdiction of a higher law, which is also harder. And it implies, it does not mean, although you are not judged by the other law, the lower law, you might say, it does not mean that it does not apply to you in every way. Because there is a, there are many reasons for the law being given. And we have seen when we examined sections of the law of Moses in the Old Testament that it is a gross oversimplification to say that, um, that it's from the negative power totally. There are parts of it that are, definitely. All of the parts that deal with, with the sacrificial cult, animal sacrifice, uh, and other parts too. There's some very heavy sections which we didn't necessarily read. But there is also, you know, shot through that, there's a very strong testimony to the law of love and to the necessity of love and of forgiveness, including the famous statement, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And as we will see later, Jesus will often quote from Moses in order to clarify his own teachings. So, the point is here that there is an inner meaning to that law, the negative law, you might say, the old law, an inner meaning which is not, although it may be mixed up with the negative power's law, it is not under his control. And that inner meaning has got to be brought out from the rest of it, separated perhaps from the idea of reward or punishment, um, and shown two people in his true uh, colors. And this is what Jesus is doing here. And this is what this great instruction clarifies. This is still preliminary. And he is going to explain as he goes along exactly how to do that by taking point after point of the law of Moses and showing its inner meaning. And this is what, um, in fact, this is the form of the Sermon on the Mount is precisely this. The connection between it and the law of Moses is very deep. So he is explaining now not to be surprised by what he's going to say next because you may have thought that I don't care about the law, but I do. In other places, he definitely explains in the ways that it does not apply. But here he is interested in emphasizing the other part of it. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jot and a tittle. Jot is the smallest Hebrew letter, which is called Yod in Hebrew, and in Greek it's called Iota. And it's a little tiny letter. And a tittle is a little pair of horns that are put on some Hebrew letters to distinguish them from others. They look very much alike if you don't have them on there. So they're the tiniest possible specks that the pen can make. And he is saying that um, that even that much isn't going to change until it's fulfilled. Well, there is a, it doesn't quite mean what it seems to mean on the surface. There is a a subtlety of meaning here. Um, fulfilled means to have the inner reality of it manifested and have it clearly mean what Jesus knows that it means and what the Masters know that it means. There is those things which are transcendent which are important, will be um, 
made fully clear, that is the fulfillment of the law. Until that happens, uh, the law remains binding as it stands for everyone. In other words, until we leave the negative power's domain, okay, till heaven and earth pass, in other words, as long as the negative power's world exists, and we have not yet come into a higher plane or come into the, into the contact of a higher teaching, the law remains binding. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's all good, but it remains binding all the same. And if a person breaks it, um, then they pay the penalty. And that is the, the framework of the lower worlds. So this has to be worked through. And it's done in several ways. One way is by people um, constantly paying off their karma, one way or another, which is part of the meaning. And the other way is by the masters um, struggling to bring forth to a, a skeptical and largely indifferent world the true meaning of the of the laws, so that they can thereby liberate people from the the full power of that law. It's easy. These things are very easy to be oversimplified about. We think, I mean, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, God and Satan are very sharply juxtaposed to each other. Satan is considered to be true, fully evil, and God entirely good. Well, it's right that God is entirely good, but as we have seen from the Anurag Sagar and from the things that the Master has said many times, that although Kao, or the negative power, definitely figures as Satan in many contexts. He is not the complete evil figure that that perhaps the comic books maintain that he is. He is uh, much more subtle than that. And there is a sense in which the law that he has promulgated, the laws that exist in various religions partially, and as we could call the law of karma in its true cosmic form, is a grade school that we have to pass through in order to go on to high school. It's like if you could think of a grade school run by a megalomaniac, okay, that that uh, doesn't want anybody to ever graduate, but does just the same. He runs a very tight ship, you might say, in his school. And those who are there, they learn a lot. It's just that when the time comes for them to go on, he somehow manages to push them back. But if someone else say, who runs a high school nearby that's really fine and he wants more students, he notices what's going on. He takes the ones who are ready to graduate, not the ones who are just starting out. So that there is there is something to be said for fulfilling the law in that sense, in that sense for living up to it, in other words. The masters often talk, a little later on we will hear that Jesus has to say about marriage, for example. Masters often talk about how the rishis and munis set up these laws to keep us in limits. And in other words, to supersede wildness by civilization. They are for social purposes and therefore they are not as important as spiritual higher law. But unless someone has learned already what those limits are and has got a sense of his responsibilities in the social sphere, then it is difficult 
the Masters, I think, are saying, to go higher. And if we are constantly involved in, in uh, changing and messing up in just the social sphere, in that level, then we reduce our ability to grasp anything on a higher level. So that they, they are not totally opposed to each other at all, even though the masters in many ways do come to destroy, although not, not in the obvious sense. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now these least commandments, I think it's clear from the language, refers to not the law of Moses per se, but the interpretation of it that Jesus is giving here. In other words, Immediately following the statement comes a series of commandments, which are the ones that he obviously considers important. And they're based on the law of Moses, but they leave a lot out that are not so important, and they also go a lot further in some ways. And these are the ones, because we know in other places that Jesus did not hesitate to break commandments of the law, which he did not consider important. He did not hesitate to violate the Sabbath day, for example, if he considered that it was important enough to do it. He did not do it um, arbitrarily or capriciously. But if he considered that the need was great enough, he did it and explained because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he would probably have said that in reality it was not breaking the commandment as it had come from God. It was breaking it only as it was being interpreted by men. And note also the emphasis on do and teach. It isn't enough to teach that people should keep this law. We have to do it first. If we do it and then teach others, then we might be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And we will see how hard this is to to do. It's not an easy thing. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now this is heavy, and it's said to the disciples, of course the initiates. And what it means is it's a, it's a, it's a repetition on a tougher plane, stricter plane of the same thing that we read last week about the salt of the earth. If the salt had lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing. We are meant to be good people. The initiates are supposed to be good people. We have to be, in other words, better than the people whom we ordinarily looked up, look up to as the best. Because the scribes and Pharisees is not used here in a particularly negative way. He is taking them, and there are a few instances throughout the Gospels where this is the case, He is taking them on their own face value, on their own assessment, and saying that you have to exceed that. Now, in other places, he really hits the Pharisees hard on being hypocrites. And we will see why and how he does that when we get there. But here he's not doing that. And there are are other instances, too. He's saying they work hard at doing what they consider to be the will of God. And they work so hard on it that everyone considers that they succeed. 
But no, you will have to do better than them. You will have to do better. There is an ironic thing there, too. I mean, in Jesus' mind, perhaps they don't do very well, but he knows the effect that this simile will have on his disciples. Because in uh, in the small towns of Palestine of that day, the Pharisees were the people who did everything right. And other people would say, well, what can you expect of me? You know, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm just an ordinary person like that. So, more is expected, not less. And that is an eternal truth, of course, that every master has taught. And it's something that it's hard to grasp, that when we are put outside the demands of the law in the barbaric lower sense, that we must do this or do that, or we will be punished ferociously by the negative power. When we are put outside that, that entails an obligation. And the obligation means that we must, for our own salvation's sake, for our own salvation's sake, we must voluntarily then keep the law more strictly than we used to before. And the Masters have been very explicit on this point. Master Kapal Singh has written very eloquently in the way of the saints, Circular 17, that only those people who are willing to transform their lives and remold themselves, which involves suffering, that only those people should be accepted for initiation. And he lays it right out very strictly that the path, because the path offers a lot and it's there for the taking if we choose to take it, therefore it demands a lot. And we don't give forth voluntarily what is what is demanded. We don't necessarily become very successful at getting what is offered. Now he goes into specifics. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. This is a powerful. When I was first reading the Bible as a boy, these verses really got me. I read them over and over. They seared right in. Maybe partly because I have a terrible temper and I was scared. But it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of power and yet the verse as it stands in English in the King James Version is really hard to follow. First part is clear enough. Everyone knows. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. And Jesus says, that's right, whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment, but there's a lot more to it than that. And the curious thing is that the next line, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, the fact is that without a cause was never said by Jesus. That was put in by later editors who were worried that the sentence was too heavy. And what it reads in the original, and now, this is now known because older manuscripts have been discovered. 
than were available at the time this translation was made. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Flat statement. Like that. Just angry in itself. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. Raka is an obscure Aramaic word of expression of contempt which has been translated or not translated different ways in different translations. But it is, it's an expression of contempt. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. That sentence doesn't exactly mean what it seems to either. Thou fool probably means, Hebrew word, Aramaic word used there probably means rebel against God rather than thou fool. And it probably refers to a, a very heavy accusation of, um, of, uh, spiritual treason, blasphemy, betrayal of God. But hellfire is not what Jesus said. And this is a good point to grasp also in, in understanding his teaching on hell. There are two words used in the New Testament uh, which are translated as hell in the King James Version. One of them is Hades, which is the Greek term for the underworld, as many of us probably know, and does not imply anything about eternal torment. It simply refers to the place where all people go after death. It's sometimes used in the New Testament as juxtaposition with heaven. Uh, the word that's translated hellfire here, though, is not Hades at all. It's Gehenna. And Gehenna refers to a, a garbage dump, a literal physical garbage dump that was constantly burning that was outside of Jerusalem. And it was um, at one time human sacrifices had been cremated there. So it had a very heavy and evil connotation in people's minds. There is not a shred of evidence that when people said, Jesus said, you will be in danger of Gehenna, uh, this is sometimes translated fiery death in modern translations, that he was referring to any kind of eternal hell in the hereafter. In fact, the use of the term seems to imply a heavy but transitory punishment. In other words, one that will be difficult to undergo and very painful, but will soon be over nonetheless. So even so, understanding those things, someone has said that it seems to be a series of escalating punishments for diminishing causes. In other words, if you kill well, you'll be in danger of the judgment, but so will it be if you're angry with your brother. And if you say to him this obscure, contemptuous word, you'll be in danger of the council. Council probably means a spiritual equivalent of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And whoever says either fool or rebel against God, whichever word it is, will be in danger of going to hell. But as we've seen, it's not like that. It's really simply a reiteration that the, and this is something that reoccurs all through the sermon, a reiteration of the fact that the seed is as important as the fruit. There is why do people kill? See, they kill because they are angry, or there are other reasons too, but most, even today, most murders are violent crimes that happen without premeditation, and that includes also a lot of them that are not officially classified as murder, manslaughter, or um, various other things. 
self-defense sort of things that happen because people get angry with each other and get into a fight. And obviously, if no one had gotten angry in those cases, there would have been no murder. So, I think from the Master's point of view, from God's point of view, who can look down and see the effect at the same time that he sees the cause. In other words, we see time, we see a person who's in the habit, okay, of being angry. And he's an angry person. And he relates easily in an angry fashion. And that kind of person is a walking target for someday going a little too far and killing somebody. When that happens, from the point of view of the Master or God, looking at it the way that they can look at it, um, they have probably seen that at the very first, when they look at, you know, even one slight outburst of the anger. Carrying in that is the, is the eventual murder in just the same way as the seed that's dropped carries the oak tree within it. Now, not every acorn becomes an oak tree, and not every person who is angry kills, that's true. But, I think that it's incumbent on those of us who have difficulty with this, which includes me, to be, uh, to, to ponder this, you know, and remember that the statement is not angry with his brother without a cause. What a ridiculous uh, attempt to shortcut the Master's words here. Um, everybody, always there's a cause. If that, with that statement in, the, the sentence becomes meaningless. If you ask anyone why they're angry at somebody, they'll always have a reason to tell you. It's the whole point is that they, is not that they have a cause, but that they should not be angry in the first place. And the terms, again, when we say to someone, you're a rebel against God, or even if we say you're a fool, we are, of course, placing ourselves in the position of God. And this is something that Jesus returns to later. Here he is interested in his relation to the question of anger. Later on in the famous section, judge not, that ye shall be not judged. He has a lot to say about that. But here we are told uh, to beware, you know, to be careful, that it's not our place to worry about the status of other people, whether we're angry with them or not. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath thought against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. The gift obviously is meaningless if it is brought to be given to God and yet the hatred for our brother is in our heart. As St. John says in his first epistle, He's, how can you love him whom you have not seen if you don't love him whom you have seen? Or something like that. And this is the same idea here. It's hip- hypocritical and useless to make ritual obeisance to God if the reality of the thing is not being done. So if we have anything against anybody, we should remember that. The same is true in the higher spiritual line also, which is implied here considering the context which these things are being said, that if we sit down for meditation and we are involved in anger or judgment for others, I think many of us have had the experience of what happens to our meditation. Usually, at least this has been my experience, the whole period is taken up with 
with uh, having the darshan of that person. And as we think, so we become. So if we really don't like someone, we should try to um, leave them alone mentally in every way as much as possible, not not get obsessed with them, how bad they are. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. This is a curious statement. A lot of people are puzzled over this. Scholars don't know what it means. I don't say that I know what it means. But this is what I think it means. It's a, it's a kind of a sweet statement. Okay? People think it's self-serving, but the whole point of the thing is self-serving in the highest sense. It's to our advantage to do these things. Why? Because we want to be saved. We want to be saved from our lower self. We want to be saved from the cycle of births and deaths. We want to be saved from being at the mercy of every little impulse that we have and to suffer the consequences of giving into them. So, who is our adversary? Well, there are, this statement can be uh, understood on a lot of different levels, no doubt, but I think that the easiest way to understand it is that the adversary is our mind, that he is the agent of Kao working with us. And what this is is another way of saying... Uh, of meaning what the famous statement of Swamiji's that both Master Kripal and Sanchi have commented on, to make friends with our mind. Not in the sense of giving into it, but in the sense of coming to an agreement with it, so that it will, it will remain relatively happy and do what we want, be in our control. If we don't, what is our mind going to do? It is going to make very sure that we are delivered to the judge. And the judge is going to very quickly hand us over to the officer and we will be cast into prison. So, uh, and we won't come out since we have paid the uttermost farthing. This statement has been repeated many times by, by the masters, um, in a lot of different ways. And it refers to the law of karma. And, uh, it is excellent advice. And I don't think any more self-serving, there is a sense in which the highest teaching is self-serving. And there's nothing wrong with that, because who is it that suffers? When a master comes, he is helping people. And naturally, if the people that he helps take advantage of what he has to give, it can be said that they are serving themselves. But that's the point of it all. If everyone did it, if we all grew and and transcended and avoided um, being delivered to the judge by our adversaries, for example, then um, the trap would be over and the creation would become that which it was created to be and we would be reunited with God. So, as Master Kripal always used to say, I'm telling you these things for your own good. And he would always say also, you know, that there are three blessings. One is when we are born into the human birth, that is the blessing of God. And then the second, when we take initiation, that is the blessing of the Master. In those cases, God and the Master have had mercy on us. But the third blessing is the one that we put or give to our own self. We have mercy on us, and that is when we put into practice and care about that which the Master teaches. And uh, who is going to benefit? 
Leah. And we should, we should, we should take it and we should want to. Because we will not want to not come out until we have paid the uttermost farthing. We have come to him to avoid that. Right, the next section I'm going to stop and we will read next week, but it is the section, famous section on adultery and chastity, um, which Jesus comments on in several different places in the Gospels. We will take it up next week.